Well, good morning, church. Greetings to both those of you who are here in the room with us and those who are joining us online. Uh, I'm very excited to be back up here today, and I'm also excited before I preach from God's Word, which I am I'm so excited about this sermon, I also have a really cool opportunity, and it's a first for me, and that is that we get to celebrate with four families today, as Kyle already mentioned, uh, the dedication of parents and children. And in the midst of all the things that have been in 2020 and that have not been the most pleasant things um, in many cases, this is something just is a bright spot. I think it's so fitting that we're doing it today, especially considering that a, a large portion of our text today is around the dedication of John the Baptist. Um, it's around his birth and his dedication, and then the prophetic word that his father Zechariah brings um, on the heels of his birth and dedication. And um, I think it's just perfectly fitting, and I hope to also, in a sense, bring a prophetic word to you all today um, from God's word, a, a, a foretelling of what God has done, is doing, and continues to do. But today, again, we get to um, have these parents and their, and their children come, dedicating themselves to the will and the word of the Lord. And so I'm going to uh, call each of you up um, here, and y'all, I'm going to have y'all stand up here on the stage. Let me get my, all my stuff here together. And, um, and then we're going to we're gonna do this thing. So um, to start out with, we have Jude Peterson Bryant, and Dad is already up here on the stage. So um, we're going to have Haley, um, join Kyle. They're the parents of little Jude, and we're excited about him. I'm just going here in alphabetical order. Second, we have Wesley Ross Dunn. His parents are Mason and Jenny Dunn. We also have Victoria Lavender Reed, parents Jacob and Hannah Reed. And then we have Dalton Maverick Selman, parents Trey and Katie Selman. And Rain is not joining them on the stage. I was checking to see. She is back in the back, but little sister or big sister Rain is also there um, with this family. And so what a joy and a privilege it is to get to stand up here with you guys today. Um, Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5a says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And so we want to acknowledge and celebrate that today, that these children are arrows, as the, as the word of God describes, to be shot out into the world for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom. And so in your coming today, you are acknowledging that you are committing your life um, to this task of raising these children in this way. And so in doing so, I have a series of questions I'm going to ask you parents um, to respond to. If you commit yourselves um, to them, I would ask that you would respond with, we do. Parents, do you commit to loving each other as husband and wife in a way that sets an example for your family of Christ's love for his church? Parents, do you commit to loving your children in a way that mirrors the love of God for his children? Do you commit to set an example for your children of being faithful to the local church and serving it in obedience to Christ? And do you commit to discipling your children in accordance with the truth of God's word, the Bible? 
Amen. Church, you will also play a role, an important role, in the raising of these little ones. And so I'm going to ask you, if you are able, to also stand. And if you commit yourselves to this, would you also respond, we do. Church, do you commit to encouraging these parents, praying for these families, and aiding in the discipleship of these children by discipling the love of Christ, or displaying the love of Christ in your words and in your actions? Amen. Well, today is a day, like the, the um, hymn, Come Thou Fount, says that we raise an Ebenezer. We are setting a monument up today, commemorating this day as a day where we are committing ourselves as a church, as families, as parents and children, um, to the will and the word of God. And so, parents, I have a gift for each of you. This is um, both a Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a wonderful tool in discipling um, your children, if you're not already familiar with it. And also, it is a, 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 just a great thing that you can um, also use in your own discipleship. But also with this, we have um, a certificate. And, and we're going to encourage you, again, as we set a monument up, as we commemorate this day, we are asking that you, in doing, uh, in, in doing this, would sign your names to that certificate so that you may remember this day as a day that you have set yourselves aside to parent these children in a way that honors Christ and his church. And so, parents, we are thankful for you. You have heard the church commit itself to you in prayer, um, in, in aiding you in the discipleship of your children, and I believe God is going to do great things in the lives of these little ones, and we are so thankful for you. I'm going to pray, and then uh, y'all can um, return to your seats. Father God, thank you that children are a blessing from your hand, O oh God. Thank you for the blessings that these four are. Thank you for their families. Thank you for their extended family that is here with them. And then the parents and grandparents, God, we thank you for each person here today that is, that is committing themselves. God, yes, to these, these parents and these children, but most of all to you, um, to being obedient to your word and to raising these children in a way that honors you, O oh God. So, Father, may we be found faithful in this task. God, I pray for these families, these parents, God, that they would love each other as husband and wife in the way that Christ loves his church, that they would love their children the way that you, our great and perfect Father, loves us, and that they would help their children in more Christ-likeness the way that your Spirit helps us to grow in that same Christ-likeness. Father, thank you for the joy, the joy that it is to celebrate these lives, these families, for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. And God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, parents. Um, let's, let's applaud. Thank you for your commitment. Church, you may be seated. It is a, as much a task of anything for these parents to be doing this. Um, they are committing them, their children to the Lord, but they are also committing themselves to the Lord in the raising of these children. And so that is to be commended and celebrated um, in its fullness. Um, and so today, um, we are going to jump right in. We have much, much ground to cover um, in order for us to see the wonders that Luke chapter 1 has for us today um, and in this season of Advent. And so I'm not going to, um, to drag, the, drag this out with my words. We're going to flip straight on over to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. And when you get there, hold your place there with your thumb or, or whatever you need to do. 
If you're on a, if you have a device, then you may have to just just go um, to this first place first. But before we can jump into Luke chapter one, verse fifty-seven, and following through the end of the chapter, we need to set the text for today in its proper context, and that requires us to look back to around Luke chapter one, verse five, and the few verses that are following it. And so, as you're flipping there, I'm just going to kind of summarize the first little bit of this. We are introduced to a couple, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in that. And we, they've been mentioned already. We've seen them the last two Sundays um, be mentioned by the angel, be visited by Mary. But we need to remember who they are and what is spoken to specifically Zechariah before we can see all of the worth and the, just the amazing mystery of what God is revealing at the birth of John the Baptist and in the prophecy that Zechariah speaks on the heels of that. And so, Zechariah is a priest, um, and we're also told that his wife, Elizabeth, is of the she is a daughter of the sons of Aaron, uh, which means she is also of priestly um, bloodline, which means that they were, in, um, they, were, they were in obedience to the law, which said priests should marry others within that Levitical priesthood bloodline. And so as we consider this, what we see in the verse five or six verses of Luke 1, um, verses 5 through 10, really kind of a summary of it is we see that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they're righteous, they're blameless, and they are childless. And they are also advanced in years, meaning there's not a whole lot of changing that childless part. There's not a whole lot of hope for that um, at this point when we're introduced to them. But we see something shift at verse 11, and that's where we're going to pick up reading today in Luke chapter 1, which says, And there appeared to him, that is Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, pause, I didn't preface this. Zechariah, again, is a priest, and it was his time to serve, and he was selected to go in and to burn incense um, within the temple. And so Zechariah is there. In verse 12, we pick up it saying, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of, the, of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's thank God for his word Father, thank you for um, just the, the opportunity, God, to be reminded of who you are and what that means for us. God, as we look at this text, would you do that? God, would you, would you remind us that Advent is to be a season of us remembering and setting ourselves in the proper place in our remembrance, that we look to you and your grace on our lives and praise things in your name. Amen. So what we're seeing here is a message from the angel while Zechariah is serving in the temple. And it's one that essentially is really maybe a little bit startling (laughs) to to Zechariah, right? 
he is, he is a little bit thrown off by this, as I believe any of us would have been if we were to come in contact with an angel, right? Um, it's not exactly a normal, everyday experience. But Zechariah is here childless. Really not a whole lot of hope for that changing. And yet, here in these words from the angel, we have a message from the Lord. Zechariah, I haven't forgotten you. And I haven't forgotten my word. For years, Zechariah may have felt like he and his wife had been forgotten by God. He continued to serve. They continued to walk in righteousness and blameless. But in many ways, I believe it is very likely that they felt forgotten by God in not being able to have children. It's a a sorrow that they felt every single day. But then we're told Zechariah also responds to this in a way that maybe many of us would. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, we have the context now, that we need for our full context of what is going to happen in verses 57 through 80 of Luke 1. And so we can move now into our text and outline. It's a long introduction, but it's an important introduction to consider what is being spoken, what had been spoken to Zechariah that day in the temple about the birth of John. And so we see, first of all, in our outline that the Lord remembers Zechariah. Um, The phrase, the Lord remembered, it happens over and over again in the Old Testament. It's a very, very common phrase. And one such occurrence is in Psalm 115, 12 through 13, that says, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron, which, again, is Zechariah and Elizabeth in this particular circumstance, by the way. And then verse 13, He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. But when the Bible speaks of the Lord remembering, we also need to, obviously, we need to remember that it's not talking about God remembering the way that, that we remember. You know, we forget things, right? We, we are absent-minded. We, um, things slip our minds. They're out of sight. They're often out of mind. And we have to go back around and, and counteract our forgetfulness with remembrance. That's just how human beings work. No one perfectly remembers everything. God, however, is not that way. Um, Scripture makes it very clear God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is also omnipresent, which means he is always there, both in time and in space, in all places simultaneously. And he is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful and capable and able for all tasks, including remembering everything. God doesn't remember the way we do. It wasn't like God was over here busy doing something while Elizabeth and Zechariah are hoping for children. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, guys, it didn't happen like that. God was faithful and he had a purpose and a plan through this whole thing. The Lord never forgot Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
from a human vantage point, the Lord's remembering may, though, look a lot like him counteracting forgetfulness. But when in reality, it is him enacting his faithfulness. It may look like counteracting forgetfulness, but it is him enacting his faithfulness to us. God's remembering is not like ours. God is perfect in his remembering. It is proving himself to be faithful to his word and to his people. In our text this morning, um, we will see that the Lord's faithfulness to his word, to his people, and to Zechariah is proven true. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, we're going to read through verse 66. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, in Luke 1, 13 through 20, you may have noticed some some common things from there then also with the verses we just read. Um, The angel Gabriel actually gives 11 promises to Zechariah in that earlier passage that we read. 11 promises. Of those 11 promises, eight of them are fulfilled in the passage that we just now read in verses 57 through 66. The other three are also fulfilled and affirmed in the other gospels, either by the gospel writers or by Jesus himself. And to help us kind of along with this, uh, I, made, I created a chart for us to see each of these things. So if, you know, if this is something you want to be able to refer back to, feel free to snap pictures of it on the screen or take screenshots if you're watching from home. But here's what we see. First of all, we see he says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. This is prophesied in Luke 1.13 and fulfilled in 1.24, where it's told that Elizabeth does, can, in fact, conceive. And then verse 57 is fully um, fulfilled. And we see that he is actually a boy. Remember, they did not have ultrasounds um, back in those days. And so they had to wait around for, we say nine months, it's really 10 months to see if this was actually going to take place. And it did. Secondly, we see, you shall call his name John. In Luke 1.13, that's prophesied and it's fulfilled in verse 60 and 63 of Luke 1, where both Elizabeth and Zechariah, who we can presume did not have an opportunity to discuss this um, together because Zechariah was mute, um, chose the name John together. Thirdly, we see that he has prophesied, you will have joy and gladness, prophesied in verse 14. And then verses 64 and following, all the way to the end of the chapter, is really that coming about in, in Zechariah's life. He, it says he, his tongue is loose, and he began speaking and blessing God. And then we get this prophecy we're going to get to in just a second, where that is all he's doing. He is filled with joy and gladness, and it overflows out of his mouth. Fourthly, we see many will rejoice at his birth. 
Um, this, this prophesied in verse 14. In verse 58, we're told that the neighbors and relatives came and they rejoiced at the mercy that God had shown to Elizabeth and Zechariah. We're told, fifthly, that he will be great before the Lord. Um, this is in verse 15. Luke 166 um, speaks of this, as does Matthew 11, 11, which I forget failed to give them for the slides. But Matthew 11, 11 is where Jesus himself says, of those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus himself affirms this prophecy. Six says he must not drink wine or strong drink. This is prophesied in Luke 1, 15 also. And in Luke 7, 33, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees who are making accusations of him and of John. Um, they're making accusations of Jesus saying, you, you, you're a, you are a drunkard. You, you come in, you, you feast with sinners. He's like, y'all are just impossible to satisfy. John comes and he doesn't drink. He doesn't eat and feast. And you say he's got a demon. I come doing it. And you say I'm blaspheming. What is it? What is it? I'm a sinner. No, you can't be satisfied. You don't understand what God has prophesied and what he has said. You don't remember. But we, I'll get off too soon. Seventh, we, it will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, prophesied in Luke 1.15 and confirmed in verses 41 and 44 when Mary is visiting Elizabeth and John does a little cartwheel when he hears um, the greeting of Mary inside of Elizabeth's womb. He does that little cartwheel for her. Um, he is celebrating. He's filled with the Spirit. Eight, we will turn many of the children, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Luke 1.16 prophesies this from the angel. And Luke 1.65 to 66 confirms that as does John chapter 1 verses 29 to 34 when he prophesies boldly, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when Jesus approaches at the River Jordan. Ninthly, we see he will, be, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is in Luke 1.17. This is prophesied earlier in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And in Matthew 17, verse 12, Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. Ten, says he will turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is also in Malachi chapter 4, but in verse, four, in verse 6. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 7, verse 27 affirm this. Um, and Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, which is not up on the screen because I also forgot to give that one reference, is another place where we see that John was to be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And 11th, we get one that's a little bit more directed at Zechariah than at John. It says, you, because you did not believe my words, will be unable to speak. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Spoken by Gabriel in Luke 1.20. And in verse 22, we see he comes out of the temple and he is in fact had the mute button pressed on him. And then in verses 63 and 64, we see that he is finally able to speak once again when these things are fulfilled at the birth of John. But here's the thing about that last one. Zechariah was made unable to speak for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. 40 weeks, assuming that she went full term, as it says, the time came for her to give birth. 40 weeks that Zechariah could only watch, listen, observe, and think, but not speak. 
40 weeks to consider the words the angel had spoken to him. 40 weeks to consider the words of his wife when she greeted Mary and the child leaped in her womb. 40 weeks to consider Mary's words in her song. 40 weeks to consider all of the Lord's promises to Israel in the scriptures. The Lord was graciously allowing Zechariah to observe his faithfulness unfold to him and Elizabeth, but also to all of his people for 40 weeks. And that brings us to the second point of today's outline. Zechariah then remembers the Lord. In the years leading up to Zechariah's day, it was the Lord who had seemed silent. For 400 years, there was no prophecy from the Lord. No prophet raised up to bring a word from the Lord. Silence. Yet all these years, all these years of silence, the Lord was ever remembering his people. And he was ever remembering his promises. And during Zechariah's 40 weeks of silence, he's going to remember the faithfulness and the grace of God. Though Zechariah's last words before his silence were spoken in doubt and in reluctance, how can I know these things? I'm old. My wife's advanced in years. How? Though they were spoken before in doubt and reluctance, his first words after will be spoken in faith and in remembrance. When Zechariah is finally able to speak again, through the power and the feeling of the Holy Spirit, he just absolutely explodes with Old Testament references and prophecy. And he's getting to see it unfold before his eyes, and he can't keep silent anymore. He's not announcing some, some new prophecy. He's amening all the countless old ones of the Old Testament. And we see this beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. and He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. <laughs> Verse 68 alone calls to mind numerous Old Testament references, including Genesis 21, where the Lord visited Sarah and enabled her to conceive Isaac. 
It recalls Exodus, where the Lord visited the Israelites in their affliction and, they, and then redeems them from out of the hands of their slave masters in Egypt. It calls to mind the book of Ruth, where the Lord visited his people after the famine to restore bread to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and then redeem the line of David through the birth of Obed. The Lord had visited and redeemed his people before, and he has done it again, Zechariah says. Verse 69, if we go on, references Psalm 132, and we're going to look just at verse 17, but it is so much more than that. But verse 17 says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Verse 70 calls to mind how the prophets had spoken of the salvation that would come through David's house, such as in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Verse 71 goes on. It refers back to the words of David in 2 Samuel 22, verse 41. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. And also, this calls to mind the Lord's deliverance of Israel from their enemies through the courage of Esther in Esther chapter 9, in verse 5, where it says the Jews who had been being persecuted by Haman and his others that he had called to his side, he called them together, but the Lord preserved his people. He visited and redeemed them. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them as, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 72 goes on. It points to Micah 7 along with the many Old Testament texts that talk about the Lord and his mercy towards us. Verse 72 and 73, though, talk specifically of Micah 7. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in the steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham and you, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Verse 73 also then goes on to allude to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 22 in which the Lord affirms and makes his covenant with Abraham. Verse 74 recalls Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, which I also forgot to give to our people in the back. But it also calls to mind, and then in verse 75, Jeremiah 32, verses 39 to 41, which says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land, in faithfulness, with all my heart and all my soul. See, the fear of God casts out all other fears. The fear of enemies is taken away, and there's only left the fear of the Lord to serve him. Verses 76 and 77, though, go on. 
and in those, Zechariah understands that his son is going to be this voice crying in the wilderness of Isaiah chapter 40 to prepare the way of the Lord. And in Mal- which also is spoken of of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 78, we see that Zechariah then understood that the son of righteousness, Malachi 4, 2, is this this son that will never set, a sunrise that will come on Israel, is the light that his son would bear witness to, the light that John would come and bear witness to, as John 1, 6 through 8 also tells us. Verse 79 then goes on, and it should bring to our minds two wonderful texts from Isaiah, that we talk about often at this season of Advent. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. And Isaiah, that's Isaiah 9, 2, Isaiah 42, verses five through nine. Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, from prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no one else, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you. The Lord God, creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them, had chosen the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth to play a vital role in the coming of the Messiah, who would be the bringer of the new covenant. The grace that God showed Zechariah and Elizabeth went beyond their wildest dreams. Not just a child, not just a son, but the one who would be the forerunner of the Christ. And the new things that Isaiah 42 verse 9 speaks of, these new things that the Lord had spoken nearly 800 years before they happened, were now springing forth before Zechariah's very eyes. And all he can do is remember with the psalmist the steadfast love of the Lord and give thanks for it. Psalm 107 8 through 15, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They, they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their darkness or from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. This is who the Lord had always been and who, continue, and who he continues to be. Zechariah now had full assurance that the words and the works of the Lord would prove true in the future because they had in every way proven true in the past. 
the Lord remembers his word. He remembers his promises to his people and he will always do so. We, his people then, must remember who he is and all that he has done for us and promised to do. And we must remember these things according to grace, which brings us to our final point. As we consider this last point, I want to first make note of something. The names Zechariah and John are of utmost importance of us understanding the significance in this text. Hebrew names are always important, but these two take on a special importance today. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And the name John, or Hebrew Yohanan, means the Lord is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh is gracious. God's faithfulness in remembering Zechariah and Israel is entirely of his grace. As Zechariah remembered the Lord, he remembered the Lord's grace. And as Zechariah considered the future of John and of Jesus, it was all grace from God. God remembers us by his grace. This is the first thing that we need to understand about this. Everything about God's remembrance of us and our remembrance of him is all founded upon his grace. He remembers us by his grace. We bring nothing to God that he should, that should demand or merit his faithfulness and steadfast love towards us, yet he gives it freely and joyfully. Psalm 37, 28 says, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Zechariah and Elizabeth may have been tempted to think that the Lord had forgotten and forsaken them. Israel often accused God of doing just that, of abandoning them when they would find themselves in distress because of their disobedience. Yet time and time again, the Lord in his grace would be faithful to them. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord answers, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, says the Lord. The Lord has never and will never forsake or forget his people. Advent, Jesus' coming, is the greatest proof of this. He hasn't forgotten. He will not forget. Jesus' hands that were nailed to the cross are the hands on which the names of God's people are engraved forever because they are covered, we are covered by the blood that was shed from those hands. God would forsake his son on the cross that he might forget the sin of all who would repent and believe. Jesus was forsaken so that we wouldn't be forgotten. But God would remember Jesus on the third day that he might redeem his people for all eternity. God's grace is a remembering grace. Always turning to us and never turning away from us. By his grace, God remembers and declares to us um, that we are righteous 
Anything we offer falls short, as Romans 3, 21 through 25 tells us. It's only by grace that we are able to come to him. In his grace, God shows his righteousness. The Lord remembers you just as he remembered Zechariah. And John's name reminds us that God does so by his grace. In response, we too must remember the Lord for his grace. For while he remembers us by his grace, we remember and think of him for his grace. We need to continually remember who God is. Continually call to mind the grace that he has shown and continues to show. And the Bible invites us to constantly be doing this. Um, And we need to because we do so easily forget, right? As our uh, former pastor, beloved pastor, uh, Keith Pugh would say, we are monumental forgetters. We forget so readily and so easily. We need to be reminded. We need to cause ourselves to remember. And this is one reason we need to do this, but also because our faithfulness and obedience to God is always, always in response to his faithfulness to us. Never the other way around. We won't rest in God's grace if we don't remember it. We won't. And if we fail to remember God's grace in the past, we will fail to trust his grace for the future. Hindsight, hindsight church brings hope. This is the message of the Christian faith. Hindsight brings hope. Remembering grace is the Christian life. Always remembering that we rest in grace for all time past and forevermore. Without the gracious intervention of God, we would be forever lost and incapable of remembering God, in fact. As Ephesians 2, 4 through, t- 4 through 10 tells us, we were dead in our trespasses. Dead people can't offer anything. We have nothing to bring before God. And yet he intervenes by his grace and redeems us. He has visited us literally in the coming of Jesus. So the Lord has graciously provided for our greatest need, which is our reconciliation to him. Why should we doubt that he would give us everything else that we could ever need? Romans 8, 31 to 39, which I don't have time to read, but it tells us there is no need to doubt because God has given us every assurance of his love and grace toward us in the giving of his son. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When the world or Satan or even our own thoughts and feelings lead us to think that God has forgotten or forsaken us, We have to, like Zechariah, remember who God has always been and who he continues to be. He is the giver of grace, the giver of himself on our behalf. Like Zechariah, we sometimes just need to be still and be silent and to ponder the amazing grace that the Lord has shown us in his word and in our own lives and those around us. Remembering the grace and faithfulness of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to live in faithful obedience. Again, we don't have time to look there, but Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 shows that it is the grace of God in our lives that enables and motivates us to live a life of godliness. We don't live as those who God's going to smite me if I don't live in faithfulness. No, we live out of the motivation of grace 
and it's far greater motivation than fear. As we remember the grace of God in the past, it will shape our present, but it will also give us hope to the future as we set our gaze upon what is to come. The great things that Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 tell us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As we remember God's gracious provision from the past, we find hope and assurance for his gracious gracious provision for these wonderful things that are promised us in the future. For many, if not all of us in 2020, (laughs) this year has felt very much like sitting in darkness. Perhaps it's been a year where you felt forgotten by God. Perhaps it's a year where you felt like God has been silent or even absent. But I want to ask a question. What if 2020 has been a special year of God calling us to remember his grace? The number 40 is significant in the Bible. And the large part of its significance is that it's symbolic for purification. The flood was 40 days. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Purification rites in the Levitical law were often 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and Zechariah was silent for 40 weeks. Don't know how much you keep up with your calendars, but today marks the 40th Sunday since the lockdowns first happened in March. Forty weeks. Is it God who has been silent? Has he forgotten? Or has God been calling us to remember? What if God all along had planned to use 2020 as a year to purify his church? A year for us to not be fearful of the present or of the future, but to remember who God is and all that he has done. Advent is a season for us to remember the greatest gift of grace ever given. God's gift of himself as an infant in a manger. So, in moments when God seems silent, let us remember God for his grace, knowing that all the while he continually remembers us by that same grace. If you've never believed in Christ, this grace is offered you today. Come find hope in Jesus. 
He is waiting for you to come to him. If you are a believer, you still need that grace. I still need that grace. And God continually offers it to us every single day and every single moment. Trust him. Come to him. Wait on him. Remember him. And look for his coming again. God's grace toward us is a remembering grace. So may our lives be filled with remembering that grace, both now during the season of Advent and always. If you would like to pray, there will be people here, myself included, who will pray with you. If you'd like to learn more, hear more about the good news that is offered to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, come. We would love to speak with you about the hope you can find here during Advent and for all of eternity. But as the band comes back up, I want to pray for us that we would allow this truth to remind us to remember the Lord properly, knowing that he remembers us perfectly. Father, your word, it is so beyond me, so beyond us all. And yet, Lord, you graciously reveal yourself to us through it. God, may even one thing that was spoken from my mouth, God, draw hearts closer to you, nearer to you, God. Lord, you are drawing us all to you in your grace. Help us to remember that. Not just today, not just on Sundays, not just at Advent or Easter. God, help us to remember that every single day. You are the God of grace. You are the God who remembers God, and let us respond to that in our remembering and trusting you. Praise things in your name. Amen.